0: Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with rabbis Arya Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel.
1: Shalom, everybody! It is so good to see all of you. I can't see all of you though. Can you guys see me? Give me a thumbs up if you can see me. Yes, now I can see all of you. Hello, hello, shalom. Good to see you. Um, I know right now you see our vineyards behind me, which really are truly right behind me, but you're not seeing them. This is actually a picture of our vineyards which are behind me and if you could see them right now you would see that it's raining yes it is raining in the holy land and we are two days away from june we're in the month of sivan i have never seen that before i wish i could knew if i knew what the divine message was in this in the rain right now i know it's there i know we have to look a little deeper if anyone has any ideas feel free to write it in the chats Um, But I just thought I would take this opportunity to, uh, you know, at the very beginning, to share a thought I just had when I was like looking at your pictures and seeing all of you. Many of you, as your Zoom name, have a weird mix of letters or maybe even a nickname. Bottom line, it says something other than your actual real name, which makes me a little, I don't want to say a little sad, but it's like it seems like a wasted opportunity because our time here together is really to get to know each other. And there's something in the power of a name and even more than just a name, being able to match a name to a face, which strengthens the connection. And it's particularly meaningful when we are praying for each other, which thanks to Ardell, we were able to do this regularly all the time. She keeps sending us these beautiful things. And so when I pray for you and then I see your face and your real name under it, it connects the dots in some way. I don't want to belabor the point. It's just an idea that I had but it makes it just a little bit more complete and a little bit more real, which I believe is actually part of our goal here together in praying for each other. We are trying to sort of light the fire within each other's souls, you know, to engender a genuine, heartfelt love and concern for each other. And with that love and concern, we entreat Hashem, we pour out our hearts before Hashem, we bless Hashem, we beg Hashem, we beg Hashem, Hashem, to bless each other and to heal each other in exactly the way that we need it, which we know thanks to this booklet. Do you guys get this booklet? Raise your hand if you get it. Not if you read it, but just if you get it. Okay, so everybody has the opportunity there. Anyways, you know, when we're praying, I know Jeremy's going to be doing a workshop soon all about prayer, but when we're uh, praying, we're not necessarily trying to sh- change Hashem's mind. But as we've discussed before, by virtue of the humbling of ourselves before Hashem, by pouring out our hearts in prayer, we're becoming a different people. And by us changing ourselves, we're changing the entire world where the scenario has changed, the factors, the, the ingredients in which Hashem, you know, decreed such a painful thing necessary has fundamentally changed, precluding the need for these seemingly harsh decrees which we're praying to Hashem that he changed to begin with. Because okay, we know that everything that happens is from Hashem. It's designed and orchestrated perfectly to give us the opportunity to come close to him through these challenges. But if we're all coming close to him through our prayers for each other, it changes the entire equation. And by fulfilling the mission of us coming closer to him through our prayer, the hope is that the harsh decree won't be necessary anymore. Does not make any sense? The, the goal that these harsh decrees were instituted to accomplish would be accomplished themselves. Uh, okay, so that is one way of looking at prayer. And while it very much speaks to me, and I feel that truth within it, I'm not going to be so silly as to say, I have it all figured out, but I know that prayer is true and that it's a real thing. Uh, and um, and we can't no- understand it fully. Hashem is not an equation that we can figure out. His ways are not our ways and we can never fully understand them. But I do believe that he wants us to try and come close Uh, with a humble heart to seek understanding. And that's what we're doing together here in this fellowship. And uh, while I hope to get more into that discussion soon, before going any further, I want to take this opportunity to introduce my dear friend, Jeremy Gimpel, who is not in Jerusalem as usual, but he's right here next to me. And uh, this very morning, Jeremy, uh, was yet again the 10th guy he made the minion. Way to go, Jeremy. All right, you're up, share your hearts.
0: Hey, shalom friends, how are you? Great to see you. Can everyone hear me? Excellent. No, not good. Maybe like this, maybe like this, like Ari's like taller than me. So I have to sort of position myself properly to fit. It's like big shoes to fill. Um, Okay, excellent. Okay, here we are. So I have something different that I wanna talk about today. And um, I'm probably going to get flack for it. I'm pr- if they quote me out of context, I'm definitely going to get flack for it. But there's nothing that I can do other than speak the truth, at least the truth that I see before me. And I see that this is really what needs to be done in the world nowadays. It's just to speak the truth. And I think the right way to learn the Torah is to live our lives and watch global events unfold. And then see what the Torah is teaching us around those same times, because very often the Torah is a verb. It's not the Torah doesn't mean book. It means like the teaching. It is a verb. It's happening. So very often it is responding to what's happening around us at this very moment. And the week leading up to Shavuot, we're celebrating the revelation at Sinai. We're getting ready for this moment that shifted human history, that changed the world as we know it, and all of a sudden all over the news, the most one of the most powerful stores in America is outed publicly. Now you should know that Teal and I, when we go to America, one of our favorite parts of the trip is we would go to Target because the clothes there are so affordable and nice and beautiful and there's nothing so huge. It's like one-stop shop. You can buy everything you need and all of a sudden, Teal and I are watching one of our favorite stores being outed because they hired a Luciferian Satan worshipper to design their children's clothing, and we're like, what? And you can look on the screen here. The this is just like a, a clip, you know, from one like a news article. Target partners with Satanist brand to create items for Pride collection, and so that shirt says, "Cure transphobia, not trans people," and. I didn't know what to do with that at the beginning and that they're hiring the Satan worshiper to design their children's clothing. And the des- I was just a uh, Satan worshiper. Like, I don't, that's bizarre. <laughs> so I started investigating a little bit more. The designer was interviewed on Newsweek and he said, no, he doesn't believe in Satan because that would mean that he believes in the Bible. He doesn't believe in the Bible. He doesn't believe in Satan. He just believes in the values that Satan represents. <laughs> and was like, that's exactly what a Satan worshiper would say. They don't believe in the Bible. They just believe in the values that Satan represents. That's like the most disgusting. And we're like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? On another shirt, it says Satan respects pronouns. And I'm like, what is happening? You know, the first time that I heard about pronouns was when Jordan Peterson really became famous. He fought against Canada, passing laws that would force people to use these different pronouns, meaning you would be punished by the government if you didn't use this new language made up by the woke. And here's just a thing that I found on on the internet and it's like, instead of him, it's Zim and Zer. I mean, did they really think people were gonna use those terms? Are they delusional? Or is something really profound happening in the world? I mean, obviously, as this sort of uh, evil was exposed and brought to light, the the target stock crashed. I mean, if you like, you look look at the Bloomberg and Barrons and all these, you know, the news outlets and there's their, the business sections. They ju- they just say like, oh my gosh, everyone's boycotting Target and the stock is crashing because normal parents do not want to give their children clothing made by satanic Luciferians and people started to just not go to Target and on the contrary, they were trying to like sneak this into our children. We're just boycotting the whole store. And then I saw this video and it connected all of the dots. I mean, we're talking now about the week before the revelation of sun, the time when the Torah was brought into the world and all of this is coming to light. Like often evil sort of hides itself. It's like, no, I'm a snake in the garden. I'm really trying to help you. I like taste this fruit. It's like, it's not really telling that it's evil. It's coming in the in the guise of being accepting, of being loving, of being Kind, of kind to others and understanding of others. And that's really hard to sort of argue with. We all want to be accepting and loving and kind to others. And oh no, these are Satan worshipers. Oh my goodness. That's a shock. Now it's sort of the, all the pieces are coming together. Well, watch this video. It's of the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, criticizing Americans for boycotting Target. Watch this guy. He's something else.
1: It's scary to see what's happening in the United States, whether it's 2SLGBTQI rights that are constantly being attacked. My government will never let it happen. My government will always stand up unequivocally for women's rights, for 2SLGBTQI plus rights. <laughs>
0: two s who added the number two when did that happen what people are identifying his numbers now when did that happen he just said that i mean he didn't even flinch he didn't laugh he's an amazing actor i mean he was a drama teacher before he became a politician he reads the lines that they wrote for him so well he's such a good actor but honestly, a 2SGLB, wh- wh- there, there's a number in there now? That is something that no one was expecting the number in there. People are identifying as numbers now. I mean, what is going on? What does it mean that Satan respects pronouns? And what does it mean to believe in the values of Satan? And what it is, is it is the opposite of the Sinai revolution. The Bible comes to the world, it says life has a purpose. Life has meaning. There's a good life, there's ideals and values that transcend this world, virtues to live out in your life, ideals, truth. And what are these pronouns trying to convey? What's the spiritual message? They're saying, there's no truth, there's no meaning. We can make up our own meanings. Well, there's no good, there's no evil, there's no him, there's no her, there's Zer and Zim and two and plus, and all these, it's like ludicrous because life is absurd and meaningless anyways. But wait a minute, you're going to tell me that there's nothing true in the world? you believe in the values of Satan? You can just do whatever you want, be whatever you want. You can make up your own values. And that's kind of appealing sounding. Well, that sounds good. But then the good people of the world, they ask themselves, well, what about inflicting pain or hurting the innocent? I mean, that's inherently wrong, right? Well, here's where the Bible can teach us a profound truth about humanity. Because with all of our technological progress, humans haven't changed much. What was the core evil practice in the times of the Bible? The ancient idolaters that Israel had to fight against. The idolaters that were the utmost evil. It was child sacrifice. They would take their children and burn them to death. And now, no, according to woke Satanists, there's nothing inherently wrong with anything. Who is to say something is right or wrong? It's I worship. Nothing is right, and nothing is wrong. And I will burn the children in the fires of Molech, torture the innocent if I will benefit from that experience. That's what's happening in there. Humans haven't changed. The people that worshiped nothing then are the people that are worshiping nothing now, and the same people that sacrificed children then are happy to sacrifice our children now. So people nowadays they think ah uh-uh, child sacrifice today that's expressed through abortion, and there's truth to that. But if you look closely now, Disney and Target, the woke Satanists out there are targeting our children, sexualizing them, trying to normalize pedophilia. That's what's happening now. No, but they're innocent children. We have to protect the innocent. You can't just hurt and abuse innocent children. They're saying, yes, we can. There's nothing wrong and there's nothing right hurting children isn't wrong, because who's to say what wrong is? And who's to say what hurt is? Maybe they'll like it. I mean, if you pass the law that a child can decide to mutilate themselves in this transgender mania that's sweeping the West, cutting children with surgery is okay, is it really that far to say that kissing a child is okay? I mean, that's where all of this is headed. Don't we see that? It's a war against good. It's a war against morality, a war against truth. And who are they attacking? The most innocent, just like the idolaters of old. Nothing has changed. And here we are celebrating the revelation at Sinai when the moral fabric of reality was revealed to the world. The path for humanity to walk if they want to flourish. Exactly at the time that we're celebrating Shavuot, the opposite force comes out of the woodwork. Honor your mother and father that you may prolong your days on the land. That's what the Ten Commandments says. Watch what will happen to a society that breaks apart family, that takes apart gender. There's no mother, there's no father, there's no honor. They will not live long upon the land. And you can watch actually as this woke civilization, the most woke cities in the United States now are crumbling before our very eyes because without the fabric of, reality, holding it together, the whole thing comes apart. And so now it's becoming clear, the war of ideas, it's a war of good and evil, but the evil isn't just coming in the name of evil, it's coming in the name of there is no good and there is no evil. I mean, these are the last death throes of darkness and the light of the Torah is getting stronger in Israel. In Shavuot, in Judea, on the Arugot farm, I'm telling you, it was like a taste of paradise on earth. And the evil that was hiding behind political correctness, hiding behind acceptance in loving the other person is now revealing its true intention. And once it does that, it doesn't stand a chance. So keep your eyes open, friends. Look at what's happening around us and watch the Torah come to life because the Torah is the guard of the insanity that's out there, bringing the light to the darkness and bringing the truth to a world filled with lies. And so when we learn the Torah together, when we pray together, what we're doing is we're building our own arcs around us and around our families. And ultimately, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, that really is the ultimate arc. And so all of our prayers that come through this land, all of our hopes and dreams that surround this theater of God's plan that's unfolding, that, that as kind of the woke civilizations are sort of falling apart, the kingdom in God's land here is becoming more beautiful, more religious, more spiritual, more connected. And that is what the future holds. So now that the evil has sort of finally, it's like exposing itself, then Baruch Hashem, God put in all of us a piece of him to say like, whoa, 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 those are our children. Enough is enough. And so with the power of the Torah and with the power of the good people of this world, and particularly, the power that is growing of the Torah of the land of Israel, the Torah is going to shine forth all over the world. It already is happening. And as this finally, like this, like last death throes of darkness, are sort of like trying their best. It's just a matter of time until the dawn of the new sunrise comes up here over the mountains of Moab and over the, over Jerusalem. And so that is the Torah that I have to share with you. And the Shavuot, as we are watching the Torah speak directly to the world as all of this is happening. So I'm gonna pass it back over to Ari now. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you soon. Shalom.
1: Shalom, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Okay. Yes, that was definitely uh, powerful. Sometimes looking at what's happening and transpiring, unfolding, in America, it seems like that, that your nation, for those of you in America, it's collectively lost its mind. It really does. But losing your mind can somehow sometimes be just like, it's just something that happens. There's something deeper and darker and more sinister happening. And it's definitely worth looking at. Uh, but, uh, but for me, very all encompassing has been the, the two days of sacredness that we just celebrated here in, in Israel. Because in the exile, we're where two, there's two days of each of the high holidays. You know, uh, the, uh, the three pillars, the Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot. Those, they're, instead of having one of the holy days, there's two. For reasons I won't get into right now. But this year, Shavuot in Israel, Pentecost, the holiday of the giving of the Torah, that we just celebrated, fell out on Thursday night. And ended on the very moment that the Sabbath began. Right, So we, were, we had two back-to-back days, which uh, was, is a lot, and Shana and I actually spent it with our beloved friends Yaniv and Ariella, and their four incredible daughters in the frat, which was a beautiful experience. And so, as is customary to do, Yaniv and I stayed up all night learning Torah together right until sunrise, when we prayed the morning service, which culminated in the reading of the Ten Commandments from the Torah, which is a very powerful experience you know the sages teach that we're supposed to experience it and visualize it as if the bima you know what the bima is you know the the table that the torah is placed upon and read from it's uh we're supposed to visualize that that is mount sinai itself by the way i have to show you the picture we just got a new bima the first bima we've ever gotten here at the farm breathtakingly beautiful did were you guys sent this picture yet It is is so crazy beautiful. I don't know how to describe it. Hashem just sends us. He's trying to beautify this place in ways that no human being, and definitely we, cannot ever do. Anyways, so there it is. The Torah is on the table on the bima, and that's Mount Sinai itself. And we're to visualize that Hashem and the angels are there. And Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, is the Baal Koreh. He's the person reading the Torah to us and the entire nation is standing around waiting to hear the holy words emerge from his mouth. And so we are balancing this very lofty moment and this lofty intention with the fact that every single person in the room at the sunrise prayer is fighting with all of his might not to pass out headfirst into his Bible, because we're exhausted. And uh, did any of you stay up all night? Zero judgment, I'm just curious. wanna see hands. All right, there's some hands there. Okay, so while while we learned many things throughout the night, me and Yaniv in our studies, one of the things that we spent most of the time was on the question of why we read the book of Ruth, the Megillah of Ruth on Shavuot, because there are a number of other texts that at face value would seem to have been a better fit, but it's the book of Ruth that we read. And that's what I want to sort of talk to you about today on this fellowship. I'd like to talk about Ruth. Because if there's one character in the whole Tanakh, who I almost, I, I most associate with the people in this fellowship, it's Ruth. If you feel a connection, identity to Ruth, could you raise your hand? Okay, there's a lot of hands up. I have to learn how to make my whole screen, but that is really quite powerful. Um, you, you know, I think the, the reason that I think of so many of you when it comes to Ruth is because you share the same motivation, the same essence. And uh, maybe it wouldn't be obvious to you that it would be Ruth, but, you know, to me, it was pretty obvious. I mean, when Ardell sent me this, uh, this very prayer book that I'm holding up here, she included one sentence under her message. Could you show that screenshot, Tabitha? Can you see it there on the very bottom? I should have just made it about that. She wrote, your people are my people and your God is my God. That's all she wrote. And she sent this, uh, you know, prayer pamphlet, sidur for us to pray for each other. And that's all she needed to say. And, uh, and that's really one of the quotes that most truly summarizes the very essence of Ruth. And knowing Ardell for all of these years, I believe her. I know it. I know her. I know that she's telling the truth because there is a fire in Ruth that I see in Ardell and that I see in so many of you. There's a fire in Ruth, and there's a love, and it's a love that is not an intellectual conclusion. It's 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 visceral and it's emotional and it's so deeply in the heart that really nothing can shake it. And I'm selecting my words very carefully here because at first glance, you know, it seems that Her love is predominantly for her mother-in-law, Naomi, right? It seems like a a personal thing, but if we keep our eyes trained on the words, both on them and even within the words themselves, we will see that, yes, she does love Naomi on a personal level, but her love for the God of Israel, the God of the world, is so all-encompassing for her that it's really impossible to sift out the personal from the greater, the the personal from the spiritual. And as we read through, it becomes clear that her love for Hashem, it's like a tsunami that completely envelops everything within it. We see at the beginning that Naomi and her husband Eli Melech, along with her two sons, Machlom and Kilion, go and settle in the land of Moab with their wealth and their possessions. And the two sons married Moabite women. Remember their names? Ruth and Orpah. And shortly afterwards, the sons die. Both sons, along with their father, Elimelech. All of them die. Here's actually a picture, Tabitha, if you could show it. This is a scene that I now think about when I read this part of the book, because it's from the Art Scroll Children's Book of the Story of Ruth, The Dvash obsessively is asking us to read to her it's all she wants to hear she wakes up she wants to hear it she goes to sleep she wants to hear it and so this is a picture from that book and there they are you know it's, it's the seemingly awkward scenario of the mother with her daughters-in-law all of them bearing their husbands who by rational thoughts are really all that has tied them together in the first place it seems obvious that they would go their own separate ways but clearly A deeper bond has been forged because even though Naomi uh, appealed to them to just go, go back to their homes, they refused. Here's what Naomi said. She said, go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May Hashem deal kindly with you as you've dealt kindly with the dead and with me. May Hashem grant you that you should find security, each in the home of her husband. She kissed them and they raised their voices and they wept. But what did they say? Both of them. What did they say? They responded to, to Naomi, both of them together, They said, no, we will return with you to your people. That was their, she tried to send them away once, and they said, no, we're not going back. We're staying with you, Naomi. And so at first, they both refused to leave her side, and then Naomi responds. And her response is one of the demonstrative reasons, given that the conversion process to Judaism is unique from all the religions. in that not only do we not actively proselytize or evangelize, but we do the opposite. And we dissuade potential converts. Some could argue maybe too much dissuasion. If you only knew some of the stories, it seemed very extreme to me, the stories of the years of the hoops being jumped through in the process of the dissuasion that converts have to go through when they want to uh, enter the Jewish people and to become a Jew. So Naomi responded with a very practical, real, logical, rational argument. Here it is. Ruth chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. She said, but Naomi replied, turn back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I any more sons in my body that might be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters, for I'm too old to be married. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I were married tonight and I also bore sons, should you wait for them to grow up? Should you, on their account, debar yourselves from marriage? Oh no, my daughters, my lot is far more bitter than yours, for the hand of the Lord has struck out against me. It's heartbreaking, right? But what she's saying, she's saying there is nothing for you. There's nothing for you. In a real way, there's no rational hope for you in Israel. It's a dead end for you there. Be practical, right? Be real, she's saying. Go back to Moab, where there's still hope that you can salvage your lives and find husbands and have families and have some sort of security in your life that's in the days where single women really did not have security at all. I think, from what I understand, I mean, it makes sense. Anyways, this compelling argument was enough for Orpah. She turned around and, and she went back. That's why her name is Orpah, from Ores, from the back of her neck. And you really can't fault her for returning for her family. It was by far the best move for her at the time. I don't want to say it was the best move, it was the most logical, rational move for her at the time. And as we discussed in the past, in that moment, her fate was sealed. It was decided that she was going to be the great grandmother of Goliath. That's right. I I know we've spoken about this in past years, but it's really relevant that in one moment, you know, one moment, This way is David, that way is Goliath. And the way that Orpah went, she was the great-grandmother of Goliath. But that is not the path that Ruth took. All the logical and rational arguments in the world meant nothing to her. Returning to her biological family in Moab would be worse than death. Nothing else mattered to her. Let's go on now. Let's look back into the actual book of Ruth. They broke into weeping again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law farewell, but Ruth clung to her. Now we've talked about this in, in past fellowships, but it's just too beautiful not to revisit. In Hebrew, the words "and Ruth clung to her" are the root davka ba. In Hebrew, the word ba means to her, right? Uh, ba like Ruth clung to her, meaning to Naomi. But at the exact same time, it can be read, ba bet, hey. Which could be read, and Ruth clung, bet, Hashem. To Hashem. You can read it both ways. So which one is true? Both of them are true at exactly the same time. Yes, she clung to Naomi. That's true on one dimension, but on a deeper dimension, she was clinging to Hashem through Naomi. And I think that these words probably speak to many of you in a deep way because your love and constant, all-consuming interest in Israel and what's happening in Israel and the Jewish people and your Jewish friends is very much about that. Often, that's really how I understand this fellowship, which is not really that easy a thing to understand. For us, we get it because we're in it. But I don't know if you've tried to explain it to other people. People ask me about it, and it's a difficult thing to rationally explain, because while we do have many very precious, beloved Jews in this fellowship, Many, I think most of you are from the nations of the world. You come from different backgrounds and different faiths. Yet so many of you are here every single week. You've been with us through the ups and the downs, through the happiness and the celebrations and through the grief and through the tears. And you're here through, you, you're, we're all here in this fellowship together. In a real, it's called the fellowship, but it is a fellowship. It's like a family. And you've been with us with such loyalty and consistency that it's difficult to understand for people that don't know it and don't understand. But in my heart, I just know that it's not really about us. You know, it's not about me or Jeremy or Tehila, it's not about our families. It's not just about us, you know, that while you may like the very mortal, fallible human beings that we are, in my heart, I know that it's Hashem that you're clinging to with such loyalty and zeal. That it's Hashem that you're seeking with all of your hearts. That it's Hashem that is bringing you here. Because we know, we know the price that Ruth stood to pay, right, at least according to what Naomi said, which would be social ostracization, ostracization, which would be loneliness, and possibly even starvation and death. But she was totally unfazed and undeterred by that possibility. Because to Ruth, that was far, far preferable. That was a much better fate than what her life would be if she turned her back on Naomi, on the people of Israel, on the land of Israel, and ultimately on the God of Israel. She'd prefer anything to that. And so uh, you know, I know that the price that so many of you have paid for being on this journey that you're on has been very great the price that you've paid socially, not just with your friends, but also with your family, which is so much harder and more painful. Is this speaking to, do any of you feel like you've paid a price in your journey that has brought you here? You know, it's uh, it's painful to, particularly with family and with professionally, I know professional stories, a lot of hands are going up, not just in person, but also on the screen, those yellow hands. I know the prices you paid professionally and financially. I know the pain and the loneliness that you have been willing to endure and that you've endured. I know what you've sacrificed. And, and, uh, and I know what you've suffered. And I know this because you've told me. Because you've told me. Because you've been so kind and generous as to share it with me in person. In, 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 with your voices, with messages. And let me tell you, I carry those stories with me. They challenge me in my own dedication to Hashem, very much. Believe me, they they uplift me and they inspire me in my walk with Hashem, and I carry them with me. And that's part of the reason why I think that we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot, because there was every reason for her to look at the nation of Israel and at the God of Israel, and to give up before even starting. There was every reason for her to believe that there was no way in for her, that there was no possible way for her to attach herself to the nation of Israel in a real way, because as you know, she wasn't just a non-Jew. She was a Moabite, a Moabite. She was a Moabite, right? We learn in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4, the Moabites are special in that they're simply not allowed in, right? Here's the uh, the quote. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted into the congregation of Hashem. No descendants of such, even in the 10th generation, which means really forever, shall ever be admitted into the congregation of Hashem. And I'm sure that she knew this very well, but none of that mattered to her. She was on fire for Hashem, and there was no potential outcome scenario, no matter how catastrophic, that could dissuade her. There was even a factor for her because no catastrophe came close to the unimaginable fate that would await her if she didn't cling to to the God of Israel with all of her heart. Turning her back and walking away was simply not an option. You know, there were people that asked me during the Shiva mourning period of my father about a seemingly strange element of the stories about him that didn't make sense. You know, Jeremy asked me if it was okay if he could play my eulogy for my father, and so I, of course, went through it in my head, and I was like, There's a lot of room here for the many of the people in this fellowship to come away, you know, being sort of offended. But I was like, you know what? They know me. I know them. We know each other's hearts. And uh, and there's no secrets here. Everything is uh, out on the table. We share everything. And so I didn't even think twice about it, really. It didn't even take a moment. I said, of course, share it with them. And um, and so, you know, what am I talking about? During the eulogy, I was talking about how my father, you know, he always liked whatever he liked is the way Jews liked it. And the, uh, the other way that he didn't like was the thing the Jews didn't like. It was the way that Goyim did it. Goyim. The, the most famous way was, uh, for example, with the meat, right? I, you heard the, the eulogy. He liked it burnt and charred. Why? Because Goyim ate it rare. And uh, and I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that is statistically not true anymore for Goyim, anywhere for non-Jews than Jews at all. But that didn't matter. We would not do things the way Goyim did them because we were different, we were Jews, and that was how we were raised. And it was pretty clear that those distinctions he made between us and the Goyim, if we're gonna be honest, came with more than a little bit of antagonism, which you could tell from the fact that he would say the word goyim as goyim, like with gritted teeth. And there was shtick to it. It was funny, but it was also, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, there's a certain degree of, of truth to it as well. And at the Shiva, it happened that there was a number of people who showed up at the same time who shared their stories about my father. One was a young girl in her early twenties who drove up from Eilat, a four hour drive in each direction. Uh, She drove up during her 12 hour break between her shifts at a hotel restaurant down in Eilat, just to be able to come and pay her respects to my father. And she explained that she and her family fell in love with Hashem and the Jewish people and they wanted to connect more than anything words can describe. And they didn't know where to turn and they were having no success and no luck And everything that they tried was a dead end. And uh, out of everyone that they knew, my parents, spearheaded by my father, took their whole family into their home and pretty much let them move in, giving them food and shelter and so, so much love. This girl was crying her way through telling the story. Anyways, eventually they did convert and moved to Israel. But I know my father and his love was not for... It wasn't contingent upon them converting. Yes, he had a special place in his heart for converts. That's true. But his love didn't start or end with converts by any means. It was just how he was. He was like that with everybody, Jew and non-Jew alike. And while I don't know, I I didn't know this specific story that this girl was telling, you know, about her family, Uh, I knew my father. And what he did for that family didn't surprise me one bit. And while it's true that he gave them much, very much, despite all that tzedakah and all of the chesed and all of the loving kindness that he showered upon them, I guarantee you that if you asked him, he would tell you that he was receiving from them more than he was giving. Why? Because he fed off their fire. It didn't matter that he was helping to kindle it and nurture it. Their flames warmed his heart and strengthened the fire within his heart as well. And, you know, it's funny, as a kid is growing up, there was a lot of times I would say, I'm so different from my father in this way and in this way and in this way. I'm different than him. I'm different than him. But in the deepest level, on the deepest soul level, I can say all of this with the sureness that I'm saying it because I have the same thing. I have the same thing in my heart. And that's how I know that this love wasn't about converts. You know, He wasn't some closet missionary because I saw how loving and generous he was with so many non-Jews, the vast majority of which. Had absolutely no interest or intention of becoming Jews themselves. I saw how generous he was with his Sri Lankan caretaker. You know the not the financial part was the. He <laughs> would give him advice on his marriage, on his career. Sorry about that. About the you know the beauty, um, but. Uh, It says my internet connection is falling apart. Can you guys hear me right now? Okay, so anyway, it wasn't about trying to engineer a specific outcome. It was simply a love that he felt for the person, for who they were at that very moment, Jew or non-Jew alike. So the question was asked of me at the Shiva how on the one hand, he could appear so anti-Goyim and so anti-Gentile, yet when you Dig deeper, and you saw his actual behavior. It became clear that not only was he not anti-Gentile, but he actually loved non-Jews. He loved Goyim, and this truth was overwhelmingly confirmed by what feels like hundreds of testimonies. I'm sure maybe it wasn't hundreds, at least a hundred, I think that I've heard from non-Jews of all backgrounds about how much they loved my father and how good he was to them, and how much they treasured their time with him and their relationship with them. And I know this is a lot about my father now, but there's, there's a reason I'm going here. Because the question was asked of me, how could it seem like he was so anti, but really in his heart, he loved them. And I remember I took a few moments and I reflected on this seemingly obvious and glaring contradiction, or at least what appeared to be a contradiction in my father's being. And while there are a number of different dimensions to it, the answer that came to my heart was that my father was functioning simultaneously in two different dimensions, right? In two different, almost in two different periods of time. On the one hand, as a kid, they, you know, we're I'm 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 43 years old right now, but I'm also seven year old Ari, nine year old Ari is still in me, and on top of him, there's also the 26 year old Ari, etc. So he was living as seven year old Michael. Also, that was a real part of him that he never left. And you know, he grew up in Brooklyn, and there were many times that he was beaten up. For being a Jew, I was raised on those stories. And often, he'd said that he would go back and, you know, he would tell me stories that, you know, you hear them. Go back and your father says, "Go punch him out," and he goes and punches him out. My father tried to punch out the guys. Never was he successful. He was always beaten up one hundred percent of the time. And he faced anti-Semitism in very real and painful ways. And you know, while he was raised with a very strong Jewish identity, very strong Jewish identity he didn't receive a Jewish education almost at all. Like many people in that generation, the Jewish education was not available and ubiquitous like it is today. And he really didn't know what it meant to proactively be a Jew. So his extraordinarily strong Jewish identity was often less about who he was and often more about who he was not. And he was not a goy. Which was, by the way, you know, many of you know that it's really in truth. It's not a bad word at all, the word goy. It merely means nations. It means the rest of the world. And like Yishai Fleischer likes to say, there's two goyim in the world. There's goyim, you know, those antagonistic Gentiles that hate us. And there's the goyim, you know, the, the lofty, holy nations of the world like yourselves who bring light and love to the world. So that's what it means, the, the rest of the world. And so in lieu of, of really deeply not understanding who he was, he understood who he wasn't. And he was not one of those people who murdered 6 million of his fellow Jews. He was not one of those people who would torment and persecute him, him and his father and his father's father and his father's father going back throughout the entire exile of persecution. He was not one of those people that would, that would punch him in the face in the hallway of his school and call him a dirty Jew. So in many ways, his identity was reactionary. You know, as I said, it was less about who he was and more about who he wasn't. And this was a critical ingredient for so many of that generation. Um, And that's what they really tried to do, if for nothing else than to create boundaries and discourage intermarriage and assimilation, which by the way, as you see in America today, really didn't work. Defining your identity by who you are not is simply not enough to keep your identity alive. And so there was that reactive, reactionary dimension. But if you just chipped away at it a little bit, if you just boiled it down to the one-on-one personal level, he was still a descendant of Abraham. After all, our last name is Abramowitz, which literally means son of Abraham. And if you were able to get past the initial superficial dimension of his you know, a- antagonism towards Gentiles, you would see this great love he had for them for the world that encompassed the essence of our forefather Abraham. So he lived with this friction within him at all times. And I grew up with the same thing. Um, Fortunately, I got a Jewish education and I understood more and more who I was and that antagonism and that hatred has very much dissipated with me, particularly upon entering the land of Israel and not needing that negativity and that antagonism anymore and being able to replace that with love and with blessing. But anyways, in my answer, You know, I I likened it to different names of Hashem. You know, we've learned about this before. On the one end, there's the name Elohim, which is in some way a lower manifestation of Hashem in the world, which manifests in rules and regulations and boundaries and discipline. But the higher dimension, the higher name is the tetragrammaton, the Yod and the He and the Vav and the He, the name that we don't even have the ability to pronounce, let alone to understand. But we do know That this is the name that conveys the deepest level of Hashem's essence, which is unconditional, unimaginable, overwhelming love. And so this seeming contradiction is really not a contradiction at all. They're both true, just on different dimensions. And in one dimension, goyim are literally the definition of what we're not. But on a deeper dimension, goyim are a fundamental part of who we are and what our divinely entrusted mission is in the world, which is nothing other to be an or la goyim. A light unto the nations, and so my father felt that just so strongly and so intuitively that it 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 bled over into all of his actions and all of his relationships with all of the non-Jews that he encountered. So this explains why, you know, just like my father, you know, whenever I traveled to a new synagogue before we were at the farm, I used to travel all the time, all around the world, and I would often go to a synagogue and then to a church and then to a a Jewish community, Christian community. And, uh, you know, when I would go to a new synagogue, I I was attracted, it was like a magnet, I found myself surrounded with the converts, not due to any, you know, religious imperative or intellectual decision, I just was sat with them every time, because, like my father, I was attracted to them like magnets, because quite often, they tend to be the ones that are the most on fire for Hashem. they're the ones who have had to sacrifice the most for their Judaism, the most to to be connected with Hashem. And while you're not supposed to ever inquire about someone who's a convert, you don't ask them about it. You try to understand, you try to be very sensitive. You don't speak about it unless they do, which by the way, there was one of the many converts that was there at, at the Shiva house that I was speaking about him being a convert. And then later my sister said, I really shouldn't have done that. And I may have embarrassed him. And I just, I called him up and I said, I'm so sorry. I was talking about that. I forgot that. Maybe you, you don't want people to know, but I just, to me, it's such a, like, a badge of honor. You're so holy, and, and I'm just so sorry about that. And he said that, indeed, it did hurt him a little bit, but he, of course, forgave me immediately. I think he probably forgave me right then, if anything, in honor of my father. But, um, but it's the, their fire that really, like, attracts attracts me to them and attracted my father. And this is not saying that, you know, converts are the only ones with this fire by any means. You know, so many of you not only have never converted to be Jews, but you don't plan on it. And that's totally fine. But you have that same fire, that same love that Ruth has in her heart. But just within the walls of the synagogue, in my subjective experience, the most potent flames are found in the hearts of the conference. And within the walls of, let's say Zoom, the most potent flames are found right here in this fellowship. Anyways, I think that fire, that passion may be part of the reason That the book of Ruth is read on the holiday of Shavuot. So here's a a few verses: one from Exodus, one from Deuteronomy. But it's talking about the fire. You know, it says, "Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, for Hashem had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose like violently." You know, Rav Biedermann, sages of Israel teach that Hashem descended to Mount Sinai and gave the Torah on a fiery mountain as a result of the fire that was burning in the hearts of the Jewish people. The zeal and the passion and the eagerness in the hearts of the nation, that fire in them to receive the Torah was met by God's emotions exactly on that front, and the fire is what resulted from that. The fire needed to be there, the sages teach, because the only way to truly receive the Torah is with the fire in our hearts. You know, I remember friends that I had from high school that were on my basketball team. There was Jewish kids from public school. I've spoken about them before and they were totally assimilated and they knew next to nothing. And then they went to University of Texas. Keep in mind, they're 19, 20 years old at this point. And I'm pretty sure it was a Chabad rabbi they met there. I don't know who kindled that fire, but whatever it was, it was there that a fire was lit in their hearts within just a number of years, they were scholars, far surpassing me one of them, a great rabbi, one of the most prestigious yeshivas in Jerusalem. How did that happen? They started so much later. How did that happen? The fire, the fire. It's the only way to truly receive the Torah, right? I, I kept on thinking and during on Shavuot, we talk about Rabbi Akiva a lot of the famous Holy Rabbi Akiva went from being a bandit to arguably the most prestigious rabbinical scholar in world history, starting from nothing. They say that he started as an adult, almost. You know, uh, he was learning amongst the children, like in kindergarten. Imagine this man with a long beard sitting in kindergarten in Gan with the little children at the age of 40. And he became Rabbi Akiva. How did he do it? With the fire. With fire. And fire is all consuming. There's a famous teaching that Hashem held the mountain, Mount Sinai, over the heads of the nation and said that if they do not receive the Torah... If they don't accept the Torah, voluntarily the mountain would be dropped on their heads. Have you guys heard this idea before? It's a very famous idea. And it's like, if you don't voluntarily accept the Torah, I'm going to drop the mountain on your head. So there's a lot of understandings of this teaching. There's a lot of commentaries and explanations about what this means exactly. But my personal take has been that Hashem was saying that if you don't accept the Torah, you're really dead anyways. Because without the Torah in the world, without the Torah in your lives, without accepting the Torah into your heart, it would seem like we are, it would seem like we're unconstrained by the law and that we're free, but in truth, without the Torah, we would be slaves, not slaves to Hashem, the ultimate King and creator of the world, which is the greatest honor to be slaves to Hashem, but we would be slaves to our own impulses, to our own physical desires, and to our own lusts, there would be no need to ever even control them or to curb them. And as we discussed recently uh, regarding the the beauty of Shabbat, you know, when Shabbat arrives and we turn off our phones, uh, what are we essentially doing? It's more than just pressing that button. We're showing the world and we're showing ourselves that we are in charge, the higher we, our soul, our will, our higher selves, when we turn off our phones we're retroactively showing that when we do use our phones it's an actual decision. The moment we're able to stop our work we're showing that the work itself was a decision that it was an act of creative will and that we are creative beings. Otherwise we're not actually creating anything but we are just the manifestation of our obsessions and our compulsions. It's not that's not a life at all. So when Adam ate from that tree, he infused within himself that very evil, that inevitable taste of death. The physical lusts and impulses became so overwhelming within him that you know it would have been as if he was dead. And then Hashem gives mankind the Torah, which is known the Tree of Life, Aitz Chaim He La Ba. The Tree of Life for those that grasp onto it, and that Tree of Life that is the blueprint of how we can return to the Garden of Eden. That is the blueprint of how we can return to Hashem and be actual creative beings with true chayim, with true life. So when Ruth expressed her unwillingness to leave Naomi, she said, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back and not follow you. you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Thus and more do me if anything but death parts me from you. So the word that's actually translated as do not urge me to leave you, as urge, is really closer to the word injure or even to kill. It's the word used today in Hebrew as a terrorist attack. Altif Gaibis a pigua. Ruth was saying to Naomi make me leave you, you'll be killing me. I'll die. I'll die. They would like death to me. Ruth understood intuitively what Hashem was telling the nation of Mount Sinai, that without the Torah, we're as good as dead. It's as if, it's as if we're dead. You know, there have been times in my travels where I remember alternating, you know, like I said, between Jewish and, and Christa, Christian communities, and uh, the reception could not possibly be any more different. There were times that I felt that the Christian communities treated me as more than a person; that I was treated a little bit like an angelic being. I know this. I know. I know that they saw me that way because they would tell me that in so many words, which you would think would would flatter me, but it really didn't. I felt very uneasy about it, you know. And, and by the way, I felt this, this was happening to me, particularly in areas where there weren't that many Jews around. And I remember meeting a convert. In one of these places in the little small synagogue, and they were a convert from one of those Christian communities that loved and idolized these Jews. This is that, by the way, is actually in Germany that this happened. And the, the convert told me that he was from that church that I was just in. And after converting, none of them would speak to him again, that they really didn't believe, well, he thought that it was because they just couldn't believe that he could actually truly become a Jew. He was a Christian, they knew him. He was a Christian. And now he's a Jew? He felt from many of them just this tremendous anger and antagonism, which shocked me because the same people treated me with such love and respect, even reverence. And this was particularly interesting considering we were in Germany, you know, a nation that went to greater extremes than any in their belief that we were subhuman. So we're subhuman, we're greater than human, we're subhuman, we're greater than human. It, you know, it's a lot. The Germans, and the Germans, it's an intense place when it comes to, to being a Jew. You know, they, and this congregation and so many Christians I met feel strange about the issue of conversion, which by the way, I think is the reason I'm bringing it up right now, because there are a lot of questions about it. People feel uncomfortable about it. And it's easiest not to talk about things we feel uncomfortable about, but it's more fun to talk about things that make us uncomfortable, to talk about things we have questions about. Do any of you, let's be honest, have like questions, thoughts, discomfort around the concept of conversion? Okay, there's some hands up. Okay, there's a lot of hands up and I'm glad you share that. I get it really from, I think there were times in my life, maybe I felt that way also. Up until I really embarked upon my journey. But I think, you know, Ruth, the story of Ruth really answers those questions. You know, Ruth helps teach us that as Jews, we are not subhuman and we are not greater than human. We're not angels. We are human beings like everybody else. You know, it's hard, I I guess, for, for, for some people to really believe that flesh and blood can be trusted and empowered to perform such a lofty mission in the world. There would have to be something transcendent of normal humanity there. Um, But, uh, you know, Ruth teaches us this and she teaches the world that we are all the children of Hashem. We can all make the, the critical difference in the unfolding of redemption with one courageous decision. And I'm not talking about conversion, I am not, I will never go and say that anyone should convert to be a Jew because I don't know anything. Some people are meant to be Jews, some people are not. I don't know. We don't know these things. Um, but you know, there's a time in our lives where we have that moment where there's a courageous decision to be make to be made, and often there's a real price that we have to pay for that decision. You know that that that. But if we light our the fire in our hearts for Hashem. And we don't only light that fire, but we live that fire. And we allow that fire for Hashem to totally consume us. There are no limits to the light Hashem can shine through us to illuminate the world, to illuminate all of mankind. We know who came from Ruth, a non-Jew, a Moabitess. If we don't believe in conversion, then you really can't believe in King David and you can't believe in the people, the, the, he who the Christians believe is the Messiah, he's descended from David too, right? So you have to believe that conversion is possible. You have to. And so, so Ruth teaches us that, and that really each of us, not necessarily, again, through conversion, but through following the God of Israel and attaching ourselves to the people of Israel, that we can be that critical element in really not just watching the redemption unfold, but being a part of it. And our sages teach that Shavuot is not only the day that King David, the great-grandson of Ruth, uh, died, left the world, but Shavuot is also also the day that he was born into it. And we can learn so much about King David when we look at the love for Hashem, at the fire for Hashem, in his great-grandmother Ruth, right, she was unreasonable, like we've talked about this whole fellowship. She was so consumed with love, there was no room in her heart to even consider the potential pain or suffering or death or consequences that could result from her decisions. None of that mattered. All that mattered was clinging to Hashem, much like King David, who was so consumed with rage at the desecration of God's name when he saw Goliath mocking the God of Israel and the nation of Israel. He was so consumed with rage that he needed to end it no matter what the cost, even at the cost of his own life. He didn't even think about that. So, so dear was the name of God in his heart and the love to the nation of Israel. And that is how I see all of you. And so I hope that I did, i you know, I just like shared my heart in this fellowship and I hope that I didn't offend anyone. I hope that you all know where I'm coming from, that I have such great respect and love for you that I consider so many of you, my Rebbies, you know, my rebbe's in the, inspiration that I walk with and seeing your walk with that God and that that fire that you have with God. And so I want to bless all of you and myself. I want to bless all of us that we have that fire of Ruth burn within our hearts, that our love for Hashem, that that love so far eclipses and transcends any earthly practical considerations that it just consumes us and makes us worthy for being used in the great redemption that is unfolding before our eyes at the very moment right now and so i want to bless all of you with actually the very blessing that hashem himself presents to Aaron and to the nation of israel in this week's torah portion which i didn't even get to the beautiful portion of naso i'm going to try to be better in the future we actually have a questionnaire we're going to be sending out soon to more deeply connect with you again and hear where your hearts are and you want to learn in different subjects maybe we can add things on we jeremy and i are always talking about knowing that things need to be changed and added and we need to to pivot and we want to hear your hearts with us so we're going to be sending that out very soon um but right now today's not the day because today is the day that tabitha's son is getting married mazel tov tabitha we love you so much and we're so grateful may he establish a bite ne'eman bisrael a faithful home in Israel. And um, and may he have that fire too that I've blessed uh, myself to have and all of us to have that allow us to be a part of what we see happening, the redemption in the world today. And so I want to bless you with that blessing that we hear, that the, the, the priests are empowered with this week. <speaking in Hebrew> Yisa Adonai Shalom May God bless you and protect you. May He shine His His light in His face and His countenance upon you and may He give you peace. Amen. hello so, everybody. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, Click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.